Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. I'm Clarence Boone, and welcome to this edition of Bring It On. We're a multiple award-winning show celebrating over 14 years as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting African Americans. And good evening. I'm Cornelius Wright. In today's broadcast, you'll also hear what events are happening locally and what's relevant in the African American world of news, all in the next hour on Bring It On. But first... The Black Film Center Archive is, a, is excited to welcome back to Indiana University Renee Baker, who is scheduled to be present for a post-screening Q&A of the 1930 film Borderline on Wednesday, April 24th. That's this Wednesday at 7 p.m. Baker, who recently visited Indiana University in 2017 to premiere her score for a different film, The Scar of Shame, which was uh, in, um, filmed in 1927, and conduct an ensemble of musicians from the Jacobs School of Music, will return to pursue research at the BFCA related to the life and work of musician and composer Phil Moore. Joining Renee Baker in our studio this evening is Dr. Terry Francis, Associate Professor of Cinema and Media Studies and Director of the Black Film Center Archive in the Media School at the Indiana University. Ms. Baker and Dr. Francis, welcome to Bring It On. Thank you. <laughs> Delighted. I, I am uh, so happy to have back with us Dr. Uh, Francis. Uh, we, we did back-to-back interviews about three weeks ago on a totally different matter, uh, but just the interesting things you do over at the Black Film Center Archive and, and what the public should really know about uh, is truly uh, wonderful and significant. And you alerted me that we had uh, someone of a prominent status that would be visiting the city of Bloomington and said, oh, we, we may want to have a conversation with this lady. And I'm just in our preliminary conversation leading up to our airing today, I agree a thousand percent. Absolutely. Uh, I am so pleased to have with us uh, Ms. Renee Baker, who is an accomplished um, director, composer, visualizer, um, genius at her craft and on yep. and on and uh i tell you let's just sort of dive in what's going on on wednesday dr francis what's going on on wednesday is um pretty awesome renee baker is here we're going to watch um borderline borderline stars paul robeson um, I should say the great Paul Robeson, um, athlete, attorney, humanitarian, musician, um, blacklisted, and then um, kind of revived in various ways. Um, so people probably know him for um, his performance of Old Man River. Mm-hmm. And uh, old, I won't. Um, <laughs> but he, Old um, Man River. 
Okay. okay. Nice. I'm available for bookings. And, uh, okay. <laughs> Weddings, parties, barbers. Barbers. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that's what he was known for, this rich mm-hmm. baritone. But he was also a wonderful actor. Right. Um, and although he was often ambivalent about his films after they were done, mm-hmm. um, the performances are memorable. The films are definitely worth watching again and again. And Borderline is a curious kind of work I think in his body of uh, in his body of films um, I just I just describe it as wild in mm-hmm. terms of the plot um, the filmmaking style and um, and all of that um, but on so that's I think that's my little teaser about it it's mm-hmm. um, it's a interracial romance um, the townspeople have feelings about it the spouses, I think, have feelings about it. Everybody. Yes, there yeah. are words, there are knives, there are feelings. And um, and what's exciting about this particular screening is that it will be, not accompanied isn't the right word, but will be sort of in concert with a new score by Renee Baker. Now, for our listening audience, you might want to let them know when the film was set because I know that has a lot to do with it, the whole time framing of it. And then, Ms. Baker, if you could let us know about your contributions to the film. Yeah, it's a 1930s <laughs> film. Um, it appears to be contemporary to that time. So uh, it's silent. Uh, I mean, silent in the mm-hmm. sense that we don't hear people talking, but definitely there's sound implied, and of course there's a musical score. So I would think of it as contemporary to the 30s, but it definitely feels fresh, I think. Well, uh, first of all, the f- um, I had no knowledge of the film prior to a friend in Switzerland sending it to me. He said, you know, you're doing so much, I bet you haven't heard this. And so when I looked at it, I thought, I started checking things out, and I thought, I don't see any records of this film being screened here. Um, but I did find out <laughs> that the the director of the film was kind of like a one-hit wonder because he didn't do anything else after Borderline. Borderline was really panned. So what excited me about it was that in 1930, we were already talking talkies. Talkies came in in the late 1927s. Mm -hmm. And so with Paul Robeson and this great voice, why did this guy decide to do a film with Paul Robeson and his wife, Eslanda Robeson. The, the wife in the film is also his real life wife. Hmm. So the only thing I could think was that they really wanted to focus on what was happening in this time period and in this time. This romance was certainly, it was taboo, but not by everyone, because many people in the town and in the bars and around them seemed to embrace it until the affair, until the wife, played by Islanda Robeson, has an affair with a white gentleman in the town. Things get heated. He kills his wife. She goes back to her husband, Paul Robeson. And because this is so rough to so many people in that time, they got together as a town and said, and wrote a letter and said, y'all need to get out of here now because you're tearing up the fabric of this town. Negroes are tearing up the fabric. So 
But there are so many layers in this film, though. Not only the filming and the film techniques, but the storylines contain huge levels of sexuality. Um, it touches uh, homosexuality. It touches eroticism. It touches uh, black-black relationships, black-white relationships. It touches on the effect of alcohol on people and their mores. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of deep stuff for an hour and nine minutes. But I, I found it very interesting that the main target for the audience was not this real heinous racism. Because mm -hmm. I think had that been filmed in the US, it would have been a different movie. I mean, it would have been all about racism. <clears throat> there would have been no love scenes. There would have been no, no sensibilities. There would have been nothing to tell you that anybody around was in agreement with this. It, it kind of would have been like a, a, birth, a birth of a nation, kind of, you know, them and us. But that's not the feel that you get um, from Borderline. So I just found it really intriguing that um, this was something I wanted to put a score to and get in front of people's eyes because um, it's really it's really avant-garde cinema for 1930. Well, as you were talking about the film, and I'm thinking 1930s USA and the subject matter, I, I was kind of thinking to myself, well, who was bold enough to do something like that? So when you said it was not made in the United States, that was one of those, ah, uh -huh. okay, mm -hmm. I, I, I've got that now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, did was, was the director ever asked why he decided to do a silent film, especially with the rich voice of Paul Robeson? No, I, not to my knowledge, not to my knowledge. All I know is that he didn't make any more after this because um, Borderline was the end for him. From what I've read, it was not well received because I think people going to the movies, if sound is available, they want to hear sound. Mm -hmm. you know, but that strikes at the heart of why I think it's important to grab a silent film and bring it forward because with the new music, I find people are a lot more willing to sit and listen and access our history, their history, everybody's history, which is what is present in those films. These are cultural documents. And, and if you look at Borderline, there was none of the nonsense that you saw that was stereotypical in many U.S. films. Mm -hmm. They were well dressed. Right. You could tell, even though they didn't speak, you could tell that they were, they would be well spoken, uh, family people. Okay, so she made a mistake, but in the end, it's rectified. They never go ghetto. Mm -hmm. So that's it, that's what I love about uh, the film. Well, before I uh, lose this thought, uh, when you were speaking, and Cornelius Cornelius said. Um, that this was made overseas, and aha, uh, we get it. It's interesting that even now, I think Ancestry.com is under fire for a commercial uh, of this slave woman and this white, I guess you might think white master, or maybe not, but they um, come together and they run off and then jump ahead to the present. Someone's researching their history. They discover that their great descendant somewhere is this black woman and this white male. So, and, and they've come under fire for even trying to, as they say, romanticize slavery. 
And and this is you know of course the U.S. I mean we 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 yeah. can't talk about we can't have the town hall discussion on race. I mean this is a thing we're avoiding as a nation. Yeah. But overseas in Switzerland, I think maybe in maybe in England maybe is or is that a stretch? Uh, some things are are more accepted or uh, weren't as taboo. Well, there's racism everywhere. Mm-hmm. We just have different kinds. Right. You know it it the DNA of the U.S. is racism. That's the, that's the foundation. Um, and it doesn't just mean black. I mean, this is how the whole country started. Right. You know, grabbing something that somebody else had and subjugating them. So, um, again, with the, uh, the commercial that you're, that you're talking about, right now we're in, a, we're in a touchy space. We're always in touchy spaces. One, because a conversation is never had fully because everybody doesn't want to engage. But once again, when you're talking about a commercial like that, we have to be really careful that we're not embracing the white savior mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. idea. And that's the kickback about that mm-hmm. uh, commercial. It's tantamount to, well, you guys wouldn't be doing as well as you do if mm-hmm. we hadn't brought you here. Mm-hmm. See, that's a narrative that I'm not, I'm not willing to play out. So, um, and, and I look at these films as art. Right. It's culture and it's art. And um, being presented as an artwork, I have to leave it to the viewer to pull out his or her meaning uh, from, from, what I'm, from what I'm presenting. That's why I don't shy away from ugliness in, in film. Now, one of the other things that you also are here to do is to research uh, the works of Phil Moore, mm-hmm. uh, who, uh, as in the description that I read, has 70 boxes at, at the very least of archived materials. Mm-hmm. And he has, uh, and he wrote back in the 30s and 40s, 50s, up to 60s, 70s, and has worked with some of the top named actors of that time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But little was known that there was a, a black uh, hand at work developing and making these television. He did a lot of television type of uh, and, and scoring and film. But talk a little bit about him and why, why you're intrigued and, and his impact. Okay. Um, as, as an instrumentalist and as a composer and as a conductor, I know that so much of the work that was done by um, black arrangers and black composers really uh, got subjugated to the networks. And so it was about payroll. It was about um, who ownership. Okay, so in that particular time, um, you know, if I paid you, then not so much that I own you, but I own what you produce underneath my payroll. So consequently, this is why Fillmore was not allowed to put his name on a lot of a, the original work because it didn't belong to him. He was like, he was supremely talented, but he, did, he didn't own uh, the work. And um, so look, trying to go through the massive amounts of documentation, um, what they did was they subjugated him to the role of arranger. So when you're arranging, what are you doing? You're arranging somebody else's music or sketches or words or whatever. Okay, so 
that was another obstacle to clear ownership. So in going through the, the material, um, I'm very careful that I'm primarily looking for original Fillmore material because he was an absolute genius. Did poetry, did children's books, wrote all kinds of music. So what my aim is for this particular visit is I'm going to put together, I'm putting together an, an art installation with sound and art of music that is inspired by Fillmore scores. So the scores are being blown up as we speak and they will be turned into visual art pieces. They'll be played by a live ensemble and installed uh, in a gallery with the sounds made by musicians, my orchestra. And um, I'm just I'm just knocking the kickstand off the bike. I want somebody else to grab it after me. You know, I want people to say, okay, so who is this? And how did she, how did she get at it? So I want people to be knocking down the doors to get down here to the archives to see what, what, what there is. And, and Dr. Uh, Francis, let me ask you this. How did you come about receiving this collection and what goes into, um, you know, receiving such noted work, not just from Phil Moore, but from other people. And that kind of speaks to the function and, mm-hmm. and uh, the, the modus operandi of uh, the Black Film Center Archive. How does that happen? Hmm. Well, it's um, a mysterious and fascinating process um, that, in, that also involves hours and hours of, um, of specialized labor, all kinds of relationships um, in a big kind of constellation, both on campus and off campus. Mm-hmm. Um, but this particular collection, the Fillmore materials, are part of um, the Black Filmmakers Hall of Fame collection. And the Black Filmmakers Hall of Fame collection um, represents a fascinating and really amazing organization um, that uh, existed in Oakland. Um, It was founded by Mary Perry Smith, who was a biologist by training, but um, who also had a passion for film and a real heart for institution building, right? So she, in the, I wanna say the um, late 70s, early 80s established this organization and over the years they held a number of award ceremonies they had um, contests for young filmmakers to submit their work Uh, they also um, collected all kinds of memorabilia Um, we have an oil painting of Madame Soltawan that's one of my favorite pieces in the collection and actually in the physical space of the BFCA um, it's uh, so it's a it's an eclectic collection. There are handprints, like instead of autographs, people laid their hands mm-hmm. on uh, on paper, which I find to be um, um, almost liturgical, right? We talk about laying of hands um, on people; it's healing. And then, rather than just like an autograph, which they have done millions of times, thousands of times. Um, they actually gave the print of their body um, onto something. It's ephemeral, but also, um, and delicate, but also um, has a very strong kind of monumental presence. So, um, so the collection is eclectic, and the Fillmore pieces are one part of that collection that includes interviews, um, I think his vocal sessions, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. sheet music, 
and um, poetry, right? Poetry, correspondence. So it's, I mean, it really embodies, I think, something quite important about black film, um, which is that black film is everything. It's music. It's the known. It's the unknown. It's images. It's artwork. It's the presence of people creating, right? And so that's why I'm really excited that Renee is so excited about this work because mm. it's it means animating papers, right? Stuff that would be silent papers will now have life breathed into mm -hmm, it mm -hmm. um, by, uh, you know, by an amazing musician and thinker. So I, um, so, so that collection came to, came to us um, from Mary Perry Smith's estate. Um, other kinds of things come by the re ongoing relationships. Uh, when people visit with us, they might um, not have been thinking about where to leave their legacy, but I try to put it in their mind, especially with young filmmakers. You know, it's never too soon to start thinking about your legacy. I mean, Spike Lee was 26 years old um, when he made um, She's Gotta Have It, and he was you know, already um, creating his um, creating his own archives, like mm -hmm. publishing his scripts and publishing his methods and correspondence and all of that. So I, um, so I think so. A lot of it is happenstance. Some of it is an institutional relationship. Some of it is um, is luck, fortune, serendipity. And um, but I think what really makes it exciting and animated is the human touch, right? It's um, it's Rhonda Seawald, you know, spending, you know, probably hundreds of hours cataloging all of these mm -hmm. materials, which oh, yeah. makes them discoverable, makes them accessible for generations to come. And then the partnership with scholars and artists who bring their intelligence to that material as well. Um, we are here uh, this evening with uh, Dr. Dr. Francis from the IU Black Film Center and Archive in the Media School at Indiana University, and with Renee Baker, who is here for a post-screening and quest question and answering of the film Borderline this Wednesday, uh, April 24th at 7 p.m. As we're talking about Phil Moore, what are some of the works that he would have done that some of our listening audience may be aware of? Hmm. They won't. Most of his work, they're tunes that you may have heard, but they're not attributable to him as, as the creator. So that's part of my, that's part of my research, um, going in and looking at, at many of these scores. They're so pregnant with his ideas. So that's why I'm having them blown up right now, because the majority of it is on paper that is actually not archive quality. And so I'm looking at some of that pencil writing, and we need to get this digitized soon, because some of that writing is going to be lost. You know, when a lot of us think of uh, television and film and scoring, et cetera, Quincy Jones comes to mind. And you had mentioned <coughs> how in the past, excuse me, that basically the studios own the rights to mm -hmm. everything. When did that change? Did, 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 I mean, it, it, for instance, with Quincy Jones, does he own some of the rights to some of his music? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So yeah. At, at some point, the, the script flipped. Well, 
boy, boy, that union thing is is really, really deep. Um, in the 60s, I'll just start there with, with my knowledge of what happened with um, unions, not just for musicians, but for composers, et cetera, et cetera. You know, your contract was everything. It told you who owned what, who didn't. Uh, think about Aretha right now. Aretha's got all kinds of stuff being held up um, in court since her death because there are people who are claiming that they wrote this, they wrote that, this, they own this, they own the publishing, they own the rights, blah, 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 blah. In the 60s, though, there was a federal law that mandated that the black unions and the white unions join together. Mm-hmm. So the union business is huge. I, I can't even begin to, to, to go into that. But um, Fillmore should become more of, um, he'll never be a household name, but he should be in the canon of music. He should be in the canon of, of television and not just as a staff writer. So for me, that's what's important. These are early steps. These are first steps. And um, you can get bogged down with the history for me, um, or you can just do something to, to get his work visible. So I'm, I'm pulling out every stop that I have access to, galleries. I have an orchestra. That's a nice thing to have. And I'm glad you mentioned <laughs> that. I want to segue into that in just a few minutes, but uh, Dr. Francis, you had a follow-up to that. I, I will ask if I can inject this one question. How long of a process do you envision this taking uh, to, to, do your, to do your good work what I'm with his do? work? Yeah. Oh, I'm probably mounting this in July. Okay. Okay. 2019. Okay. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's fast. Um, I love it. Yeah, yeah. Because one of the things that I find with these kind of projects is planning, 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 planning. Stuff doesn't get done. Mm-hmm. I would rather move on it um, and, and, and at least raise the specter mm-hmm. of who Fillmore was. And I'm not going to be the only one. People are going to see just the the initial sonic, um, the sound sculpture, the art, and everything, and then watch. People like to copy. So someone else will jump on this as soon as I'm done. So my job is really just to, I feel responsible for getting it out there. Mm-hmm. And then after that, hopefully, um, the college can, can find its way to supporting the center in getting the the collection digitized before it's too late. No, I think that's really beautiful. I was just thinking about Phil Moore and um, and this way that he's unknown, but that he also works with people who are quite well known. Yes. So he was a vocal coach for Marilyn Monroe. Um, you've heard of Dorothy mm-hmm. Danridge, maybe? Of course. <laughs> So he uh, he was her manager mm-hmm. for a number of years uh, through the through I think nineteen fifty one fifty two. So although for us he's someone who we're just discovering, he's someone who was um, kind of working behind the scenes. And if always you see, present, yeah, always present. And if you see photographs of him, he definitely was aware of himself. I mean, he had a oh, very yeah. um, what would you call that? He um, was just. He was plain old handsome. He was fine. Yes, he had oh, his yeah. pipe, He had his cravat, yeah. and this whole kind of persona. Um, 
that that uh, that comes through in the in the photographs of him. And so I think this is somebody who you know worked within the confines of his time, he but did. that is was definitely present um, and connected to people that we do know about. And so I think we'll we'll be able to retrace our steps, right. mm-hmm. you know, with thanks to work uh, like what uh, Renee's doing. Uh, I wanted to follow up um, on something that was said earlier, and I mentioned that we come back to that in in describing Paul Robeson. You mentioned that he was blacklisted. And then I read Mm -hmm. in some of the uh, materials that the McCarthy era had a big role to play in just suppressing talent and just, um, you know, someone was on a meteoric rise. They they quickly fizzled out because Mm -hmm. of accusations. But can you describe the blacklisting that went on there and if maybe we could even think about some of the blacklisting that goes on now, if, if at all. But, but if we could, mm. and, and we'll carefully walk through that, but mm. the blacklisting that went on back in the 20s and 30s, 40s? Well, I'll be honest. Um, in approaching the films of Paul Robeson, I decided to ignore that. Mm-hmm. Uh, because in my work, it's so easy to get um, stopped by causes, you know, and I'm a creator, mm-hmm. okay? My job is, with the creation, is to make you question what you know and make you question what you don't know. It's not my job to tell you what to think or how to think. I'm just giving you my vision of what I see. Mm-hmm. Now, I've also been asked if I feel it is my job as an artist to be political. No, I'm apolitical because I need to be able to create art for both sides of that fence. So in scoring Birth of a Nation, yeah, I've had black people stand up and go, how dare you put a score on that heinous piece of racial, whatever, it was art, it's what happened then. It was the first full-length film shown in the White House that the president gave a thumbs up to, ha-ha. So um, I'm not going to not access art. I'm going to let you find your own thing. So as far as Paul Robeson and his blacklisting, I can't speak to it because it doesn't, I mean, I won't speak to it because it doesn't really impact Mm -hmm. how I enhance the art that I find in, in, in his movies. So, um, and I don't want to think about him any differently. Absolutely. But, but, but let me clarify, not mm-hmm. so much Paul Robeson. He was a, uh, and he would never ever say he was a victim of blacklisting. This was just a ta- talented individual that let his talent shine forth. But other actors and actresses paid the price and directors and mm-hmm. producers paid the price. And there were the gatekeepers of Hollywood mm-hmm. and uh, things were politicized. And, and there uh, still are. And they still are. Now that's what I was uh, trying to uh, to get to. But Dr. Francis, do you have a take on that? Yeah, well, no, not really a take, but more of just info um, mm-hmm. that I picked up along the way, um, which I think, I mean, I think that's right. I think it's up to the artists who are working with him to decide what they want to engage with, right. you know, in his career. And with someone who, you know, with such breadth, um, there's, you know, quite a bit to choose from. But um, Paul Robeson was basically blacklisted during the McCarthy era, the 40s, because of his criticism of the U.S. government, mm-hmm. his um, social justice activities, and his um, 
his sympathies for union unionizing and um, and speaking on behalf of workers. He traveled all around the world, Europe and Russia in particular. Um, until to, they took his passport. Until they took his passport. Uh, yeah. Because when he would go out there, not only was he performing in films, but he would talk. Talking. <laughs> Talking. He, you know, he would build alliances um, with people that, um, you know, that, elements of the US government considered their enemies. So mm -hmm. he was he was a threat and they found a way to silence him. And yet this was someone who is I think kind of an important person for us to think about because not only was he engaged politically, but he was engaged culturally mm -hmm. so that he um he really saw himself uh, well just going back to just his education he studied Swahili he studied right. African cultures mm -hmm. he also studied the law eventually um, he was an athlete so this is someone with real depth and with real breadth I think of interest but remember most of that activity was later in his life the films that I'm that I'm working on that that primarily mm -hmm. focused on Robeson, we're talking 20s ending in 1930. Mm. Okay. That's right, so, he was a young man. Yeah, yeah, so he was, with that first one, Body and Soul, 1925, he was still in Rutgers. That was his first role. So the the Paul Robeson that, that I'm kind of focusing on and bringing honor to, of course it extends through his whole lifeline, but he wasn't that same person. Mm. Wasn't that Renaissance man at that point? Well, he, no, he was, well, you know, because he of wasn't the study. He was young. For it at that point. He was, yeah. he was young. He yeah. was just coming out of school. And his political criticisms came, I think, later. I think yeah, it, it, it came later. So when I'm looking mm -hmm. at, I'm looking at not just Paul Robeson, but I'm also looking at Oscar Micheaux, who was responsible for grabbing him. So we're talking about very few films left from from that period, just mostly because of the way they were archived or not archived. So we're talking about um, Paul Robeson at a very young age, not really sure what it was he wanted to do next because he was in law school at the time that Oscar Micheaux discovered him. So I'm not separating the identities, but I'm looking to bring honor to the work uh, that, that was done and doing the only remaining silent films of Oscar Micheaux. So I was very, very surprised to find Borderline because I thought that was it, even though it was not Oscar Micheaux. Here's Paul Robeson appearing again in a silent film and no one seemed to know about it. So, um, and Oscar Micheaux, even as a director, a lot of proclivities. I'm dealing with the silent period because mm -hmm. he goes into a lot of other stuff. And, and I have to understand, and we have to understand, that people like Oscar Micheaux were put out of business because they got to do some films. Micheaux did about 44, 45 films. But he was put out of business eventually by other directors, non-African-American, who've now started to form companies with black people fronting, et cetera, et cetera. So there, there's a lot. It's a huge history, but my job as a, a creator of Sonic Arenas is to make you look. It's like, ha-ha, <laughs> made you look. 
It made you look, and I made you forget you were looking at a silent film. Mm-hmm. And, so, on, and on that note, uh, if you're just joining us on Bring It On, we have the distinct pleasure of uh, just listening to two very um, knowledgeable ladies. Uh, the first, Renee Baker, who just spoke, is a founding musical director and conductor of the Chicago Modern Orchestra Project. She is a composer par excellence. And also Dr. Terry Francis, who is Associate Professor of Cinema and Media Studies and Director of the Black Film Center Archives in the Media School at IU. Um, I want to devote the remaining time we have to the fascinating work you do, Ms. Baker. And before we we uh, aired, we should have recorded elements of our conversation, <laughs> but you, you really helped uh, debunk a lot of uh, sort of, um, you know, just commonly held thoughts or, or, or assumptions that I had. One, that in, in non-talking movies, uh, the role of music, I thought, was just to be the underbed or just to accompany or just to sort of set a, a tone and, uh, int- you know, and just fill space. Ooh. But you, but you corrected me and said, <laughs> "Not, not, no, not, not so." You said that Chop the music. Off his head. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, thank you for not doing that. But, uh, but, but you corrected me and said that no, the music is another character. We're talking about, we're talking about me, and we're right. talking about the way that your I, approach. Just, yeah. Okay. Okay. So when you're when you're looking at film, and these are strictly the opinions of the composer. Um. When you do a movie that you hope ends up in a theater, Mm -hmm. that someone grabs it, you are talking about mass mentality. I'm just going to go there, okay? So you're talking about creating a score that anybody would like, anybody would love, anybody could access, okay? These are works of art that are primarily forgotten, correct? I mean, nobody's standing around for the most part, you know, collecting silent film but me, okay? So how do I make that film interesting enough for you to want to watch it? If I didn't say Borderline with a new score by Renee Baker, you would not go to see Borderline. You, If, if things are on YouTube, these a lot of these movies not in great shape, but they're on YouTube, you know, Vimeo, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so my job as as a creator of sound is to excite you, make you hear things that you wouldn't normally hear. Um, what I said earlier is if if there's someone crying in a film, you don't need me to play a little oh, little flute or violin behind it. You can see that they're crying. If someone walks, you don't need me to clop along. Um, so my way of scoring as a composer is to score the entire environment of what's going on. So even as we sit here in this studio, there are cars going on outside. There are people walking through the malls. There are people eating in the restaurant across the street. There's an engineer in that booth. So there is no vacuum. There's tons of things happening. I tend to score the environment. So if you're looking for, well, what is she, what, what does that sound go to? 
Well, this is not Peter and the wolf. So mm-hmm. if you hear bassoon, it's, it's not the grandfather. If you hear uh, uh, an oboe, it's mm-hmm. not the duck. I, mm-hmm. I don't score. I don't mm-hmm. need to Mickey Mouse like that. I assume that the audience is smarter than that. So I'm assuming that I'm, because you're at a silent film, that I'm talking to an audience that wants to be there. Okay, so it's not just about entertainment. It's about enlightenment. It's about in, informing. Okay, so there's this beautiful art of this film, but there's also this really, really neat art that I bring to the table. So I'm bringing these two things together. So in the regular film, the film that's done today, they are dodging dialogue. I don't have to dodge dialogue. I don't have to dodge dialogue. I can put any sound in there that I want. I can put any genre in there that I want. So what I'm doing is I'm just trying to give you something that's interesting to make you think not only about what you're seeing, but about what you're hearing. So I have been told often that my scores can stand alone. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I know that a lot of work goes, goes into them. So, and I don't Mickey Mouse action. So what I'm trying to do in Borderline is I'm placing you in 1930, but not with the imagined soundtrack of that movie. I'm giving you a soundtrack as I would have heard it. So you've got bars, you've got drinking, you've got sexuality, you've got affairs, you've got governments throwing people out of town. This is 1930s. Nobody was rapping. There was no hip hop. Not really any R&B or anything like that. I'm giving you sounds, new music, jazz, contemporary sounds that bring you into the 1930s, but it's not your grandma's music. That's so. fascinating. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to have to go Wednesday because now my brain is working. Like, how how is this going to work? One, just the subject matter of Borderline. And then two, you mentioned something I was thinking about. It's been done before in 1930. So you mentioned you hadn't seen it before. How did you collaborate with what was done before as far as your vision goes to kind of... You mean the music? Mm-hmm. I don't listen to other people's music. I, it, I, it, 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 it doesn't have any relevance because I know what it's going to sound like. People cheap out on doing scores. So they, they hire one pianist. Well, like, really? It's lounge, li- <laughs> lounge lizard music. Then, or maybe the organ. Well, I'm not interested in hearing that either because... The rubric of the pian- pianists and organists from these from those times, most of these people weren't even writing scores because they were just playing along or playing snippets from public domain classical music. That's why so many movies have Beethoven's Fifth or Dvorak's This or whatever they didn't have to pay for. Okay? That's why they only use one. So once in a while you heard about someone using an ensemble. I only score live. I'm a live musician. I'd like to keep live musicians working. So even my electronic musicians are in the ensemble. It's never me, because I don't know how to do all that other stuff, garage band and, and all that, but it's all live. Then I send the scores to producers with the cue sheets and they, and they put it on. So you'll hear everything. You'll hear string sections. You'll hear singers. You'll hear everything that you hear uh, in an orchestra just at different levels. So for my orientation for the scores, 
I'm a member of the AACM. So if you know what the AACM is, then you know I walk on the dark side and on the classical side. I have feet in both in both arenas. So I've been able to marry all those genres. It's and it's called great black music, ancient to the future. I, I have to ask you, uh, because I do know the answer to this, but I don't think our listening audience realizes that you have scored thousands or uh, created thousands of songs uh, or thousands of musical Composition. compositions. Because we had a conversation about yeah. songs versus compositions yeah. Yeah. that um, I do want you to help uh, uh, debunk the, the, the understanding that some people may have about, well, you, you, you write songs. No. I do compositions. Well, Explain. Uh, you know, songwriting is um, an admirable skill. However, the only reason why I chop anything to the length of a song, again, is because in order to get it on radio, you guys won't play more than three or four minutes. So this is why people, this is why songs start and end in three or four minutes because people uh, figure that's the, t the attention span mm -hmm. of the average listener. However, if you're going to listen to mine, you're going to listen to 25 minutes or 45 minutes. And the way I craft the scores is kind of the same way. I'm crafting a vehicle and I'm gonna take you from the front to the back. Um, you're going to cross many time zones. You're going to cross genres. But um, so in composing, I didn't do it to get on the radio. But here I is. But no, what I do is I, I, I have done a couple thousand compositions, but a lot of my compositions have to do with full orchestra, uh, string quartets, um, practically any instrumentation you can think of. In the film arena, I've scored over a little over 300 silent films mm -hmm. crossing the globe, and experimental films a little over 100, so my films and my music. We're going to, um, in just a few moments, ask our engineer to play about three minutes of the uh, selection, um, Warm Broth. And... Uh, to sort of give the listening audience a, a little taste, not a warm broth, but just uh, the taste of her talent, her ex her expertise. I had to I had, I had to say I had to put that in there, but just um, what goes on in her mind, because you know, understand, you're not just composing <coughs> four minutes or five minutes; mm -hmm. you're on a journey, mm -hmm. and you live this. You go through the day with music, with melody, with tonal sounds. And atonal. And atonal sounds going on in your mind. So if we're ready, if we could just hear about three minutes of Warm Broth by Renee Baker. Thank you. 
to the uninitiated, I would, uh, some might say, oh, well, that's a jazz song. And, you know, wow, that's a nice, who, who is that playing this and the other? But this is not a jazz song. This is a composition. Well, as I told you, the, the entire album, Empty Vessel, mm-hmm. was one piece. Wow. <laughs> but, uh, again, it was, um, you know, a radio engineer who says, oh, we're never going to play this uh, uh, this long. So I said, okay, well, let's see what we got. Go ahead and chop it up, you know. And so this is really one of the only times that I allowed someone to say, we really want to be able to play your music. And so um, a song for me is a very clear message, beginning, middle, and an end, Mm -hmm. okay. These are experiences these are happenings, these are episodes, these are, you know, this is fluxus, this is music, this is just, just sound. And so I, I can't really compose to the three-minute deadline. I can't compose to the four-minute deadline because um, for me, um, my ideas need more time than that to develop. Mm-hmm. So, And you mentioned, uh, too, prior to our broadcast that, uh, and you did mention during the broadcast that, I have an orchestra, and I like the way you said that. As if, well, yeah, you know, I, I have an orchestra, and and you have people that have played for you for how long? Oh, over twenty years. See, it, it's key, and I'll tell you, it was a very selfish motive for starting the orchestra. Um, how many black composers do you know? Well, well, we think of Quincy Jones probably leading yeah, see, in some it, ways. Isn't, I mean, that, isn't that terrible? Yeah, that that's yeah. all you can come yeah. up with. Yeah. Okay, but here's the thing. I decided, now, whether you're black or white, that I, w- with all the composition that I was doing, so what good is that if it's just all in a box in my garage? Right. So, and I'm not interested in getting anything posthumously, so I decided I need my own group. If I want to hear my stuff on this side of the grass, I need to hire a group. So you put your, you invest in yourself. You invest in your product. And I felt that my music was hot enough, was um, able to be used in many different ways. I didn't know I didn't know anything about movies when I started that orchestra. It had nothing to do with that. It was just all concert music, concerts, concerts, concerts. Um, so, but if you believe in what you do, you can sit around and wait for other people to play it for you. What happens is most people give up, and that's good for me because that, then you get out the way. <laughs> but for me, it, it was, I, I have been of the orchestra orientation my whole life. I've sat in orchestras my whole life. So, almost 24 years, principal violist in the Chicago Sinfonietta playing classical music. So that's what I hear. I hear strings, I hear winds, I hear brass, I hear percussion. So it's only money though. That's all it takes to start something like that. Vision, yes, but money. <laughs> money, you invest in it. If you, wanna, if you wanna open a sub shop, you invest in bread, meats, lettuce and tomatoes, because otherwise you're not a sandwich shop. So. As a composer, my music has to come to life. So in order to make it come to life, I need an orchestra. 
we have about four minutes left in this uh, fascinating conversation, and I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Francis to talk a little bit about Wednesday, highlight some things that uh, the audience can uh, expect to feel, experience, and walk away with. And go ahead and put a shameless plug in for the Black Film Center Archive. Time and venue, cost, if any, all that good stuff. (laughs) It's free and open to the public, um, as I think all of our events um, are. It'll be Wednesday, 7 o'clock in Wells Library. Uh, There's a screening room in the lower level. And uh, that's where we'll be. I'll be there with Renee. Um, We're going to start the screening at 7 and um, I'll probably make some very, very, very brief remarks um, just to welcome and, um, and honor Renee. It's always a real personal thrill to me to have an artist in the space um, live to talk about their work. So we'll watch the film, experience all of the emotions of um, this, <laughs> these interconnected relationships that we heard um, Renee talking about earlier, and then, um, and then we'll talk about it. Um, I know I wanna talk about her approach to composing and, and her approach with this film, um, and you know something about her career and, um, and what it means to show this work in a, an historical repository, right? Um, I think what's so cool about it is bringing the mystery back into history. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know what it's going to sound like. We right. don't know what um, what Phil Moore's, what the textures of his music right. um, uh, was. At least I don't. But I think when you look at the sheet music, it's animated for you. Mm-hmm. And so this is a really exciting opportunity to think about a film, not through the director or mm-hmm. even an actor, but through a figure that's normally um, in the background, as you said, Clarence, Uh someone who we think is just providing atmosphere or filler sound, but to actually hear someone who's composing a world uh, for us to enter into. So uh, my job that night is really just a a kind of facilitator of providing some prompts for Renee to talk about her work. So that's Wednesday, seven o'clock. Um, that's Wednesday the 24th, so two days from now at 7. It's uh, a fairly short feature, an hour, nine minutes, nine. And, um, and then we'll be talking. So if you need to get a sitter, I would say, <laughs> what, 6.30 to like 8.30, so a two-hour gotcha. kind of thing. With 60 seconds left, <laughs> I'll turn it over to Renee Baker for the, the final word. Oh, just to come out to see Borderline, you've never heard a score like this. So this will bring Paul Robeson really to life for you and will bring silent movies, a a life that you've never experienced before. And we want to thank you both um, for joining us this evening. Before I do the official thanks, I just want to mention you said your work you project will be over in July. And will you be here for that duration or are you going to make – Trips back I and forth. I actually think that the installation, I'm making it in Chicago. Oh, I see. I yeah, see. That's, okay. I'm, I'm represented by a gallery there, so that's where I'm taking the work. I understand. After that, I'm already what these guys want to do. Okay, Don't the worry. wheels, the wheels <laughs> are turning right now. Yeah. Well, on that note, our thanks to Dr. Terry Francis, Associate Professor of Cinema and Media Studies and Director of the Black Film Center Archive in the Media School at IU and Chicago-based composer extraordinaire Renee Baker who is founding music director and conductor of the Chicago Modern Orchestra Project for joining us this evening. 
Ms. Baker is scheduled once again to be present for a post-screening Q&A of the 1930 film Borderline on Wednesday, April 24th at 7 p.m. in the IU Wells Library Screening Room, ground floor, within Media Services. Our show's producer is Clarence Boone, with help from WFHB News Department Director Wes Martin. Tonight's board engineer was Chantal LaFontante. Our musical theme music was our original theme music was created by Jamil Effiam with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm Cornelius Wright. And I'm Clarence Boone. Tune in next Monday, April 29th. Boy, the month is almost over. At 6 p.m. for another exciting edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.